So here's the deal, everybody. We just absolutely love producing as much content as possible for Film and Whiskey Nation. But if our regular episodes aren't enough for you, then you can head on over to patreon.com slash filmwhiskey, sign up for one of our memberships, and you will get a slew of extra content for your listening pleasure. Check us out on patreon.com slash filmwhiskey. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. In 2012, director Catherine Bigelow and star Jessica Chastain gave the world a gritty manhunt biopic that culminates in the death of the world's most hunted man. In 2023, we try a sourced bourbon that fittingly comes from an undisclosed location. Ooh, the film is Zero Dark Thirty. The whiskey is David Nicholson Reserve. And we'll review them both. This is The The Film Film and Whiskey Whiskey Podcast. Podcast. Welcome to the Film and Whiskey Podcast, where each week we review a classic movie and a glass of whiskey. I'm Bob Book. I'm Brad G. And this week we are looking at 2012's Zero Dark Thirty. One of, objectively, the coolest sounding movie names of the last 25 years, Brad. Oh, dude, there is something about the title that you're just like... I feel like I'm on SEAL Team 6. Now. I'm in. Yeah, I'm just, I, I'm bought into the movie before anything else. <laughs> yeah, dude. Yeah. <laughs> directors can't underestimate a good title. No. So this is our second film, speaking of directors, from director Catherine Bigelow. Last week, we looked at 2009's The Hurt Locker, or I guess 2008's The Hurt Locker. I don't know. Yeah, there's some, there's to, some controversy. Who's, who's to say? Right. Go back and listen to that if you want us to suss out which year that was released in. But continuing on the controversy train, Brad, we're looking at Zero Dark Thirty, a movie that is not without controversy of its own. I was going to say, I think it is universally beloved by military folks, the common public, the (laughs) political figures in our world. Like, nobody had an issue with this movie. No, not at all. I mean, it was basically like, you know, this movie and It's a Wonderful Life are the ones that bring up the fondest memories for everyone. Yeah, that's it, man. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> All right, Brad, I have not sat down and counted, but this has to be like, I don't know, the fourth, fifth movie we've done from the year 2012 at this point. 2012 huh. is one of the most slept on great movie years ever. And if you wouldn't mind while I'm vamping, Brad, do me a favor. Just Google real quick. Best picture nominees from the 2013 Oscars. I'm on it. Because uh, it is just a really, really great list of movies. All right, so 2013 Oscars, we have Argo, Amour, Beast of the Southern Wild, Django Unchained, Les Miserables, Life of Pi, Lincoln, Silver Linings Playbook, and Zero Dark Thirty. So this is at least our fourth 2012 movie. I think we also did the eighth Harry Potter movie, which came out in 2012. There's probably another one floating around out there somewhere that I can't think of off the top of my head. 
But is Amour the French movie that I hated? That's the one that you do not like. Yeah. Wow. So a very significant movie year, you know? Yeah. Yeah, I would say so. I've actually seen every single movie on here except for Lincoln and Beasts of the Southern Wild. Oh, man. Okay. You gotta watch Lincoln, man. I, I would have expected that you would have seen Lincoln by now. I was going to say, I've seen Amore, and I haven't and not, seen Lincoln. And not the Steven Spielberg movie <laughs> of the bunch. I love it. I mean, if I'm being honest with you, Bob, I think Amore was the first movie on this list that I saw, wow. like chronologically in my life. Wow. So tell me that I'm not a cinephile, Bob. True film bro, Brad G. <laughs> uh, Bob, you never mentioned this is our 200th movie. Brad, I totally forgot until just now. And here's the crazy thing is I've had this marked on my calendar and on our like Google sheet for you, you months. Sh- this yeah, is you should have written it like on your hand. This is our 200th regular episode of film and whiskey. I am dude. I'm just like, I'm so grateful for this. I can't believe we've yeah. done 200 movies. Yeah, I am blown away myself. Like, you know, like I grew up watching movies and going to the theaters was, you know, something of a pastime with my family. We probably did it once a month or so. And so to be able to sit down and, and take seriously the art of watching films and just have a blast with my best friend doing it for 200 episodes now, like that's just really cool. And I'm really thankful for all of our listeners that that continue to tune in to hear us ramble on about movies like from Gone with the Wind to Zero Dark Thirty. Honestly, like, you know, I know this is going to sound super selfish, but at the end of the day, the the drive of this podcast is like I get to introduce one of my best friends in the world to something I love more than almost anything. And that is like mm-hmm. these movies. And the fact that I have like, I just feel like I've tricked you into doing that. Like, I can't believe this <laughs> has worked for 200 straight weeks, Brad. But yeah, the like. You have gone from not having seen hardly any classic movies to probably more than 99% of the population at this point. And and we've gone all the way back to movies in the 30s. We're going to look at silent movies here in a couple weeks. Like, yeah, it's really cool to be able to continue to introduce you to these things and to see like just how far we've been able to come in what we can talk about and the references that I can make that you now understand. Yeah, I am <laughs> rocketing up the percentile chart. Of uh, of movies watched uh, among Americans, and I'm I'm proud of myself, Bob. I'm kind of awesome. You are a kind of awesome man. <laughs> <laughs> All right, man. Let's get into talking about Zero Dark Thirty a little bit. And in order to do that, we have to throw over to our first segment of the day, which we call Brad Explains. Brad's gonna give us the movie plot with only sixty seconds ticking on the clock. So let's go ahead and hear your take. With this little segment that we call Brad Explains. Brad Explains is the part of the podcast where Brad breaks down the plot of the film that he has just seen, often for the first time. Brad, was this your first time with Zero Dark Thirty? Sure was. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Very first time. I'd never seen it. It's one of those movies that I was always intrigued by, you know, partially because, you know, the hunt of Osama bin Laden... I wouldn't say it was like a formative part of our life, but we were 10 when the Twin Towers fell. Mm -hmm. And therefore, we were, you know, around 20-ish when he got caught. Yeah. And so... Hey, spoiler alert. He didn't get caught. Well, 
I mean, they caught him <laughs> yeah. with, with a bullet. Yeah, very, very, very different than, uh, than what happened with Saddam Hussein. You know what I mean? Like, it's yeah. a different kind of catch. <laughs> but yes, to your point, I, I understand what you're saying. I'm just surprised that this is your first time seeing it because of the three yeah. films in the Catherine Bigelow bunch here, I would have thought this would be the one that had come across your radar a little quicker. Yeah, no, I, I like I said, it's been on my radar for a while, but just never got around to it. And I will say, like, after watching it, I sat down and watched Obama's 10 minute speech on on catching him mm. and read a few articles about, you know, some of the what was going on um, in the in the cab in the president's cabinet as they were making decisions. And it it definitely struck me about what a huge moment it was in our society when he was killed. Yeah, for sure. All right, Brad. Well, now you have to break down the plot of the movie. The way that this works is that we put 60 seconds on the clock for Brad to explain the whole plot of the film. If he doesn't make it through, we just cut him off and things are left just on a cliffhanger. (laughs) If you've not seen Zero Dark Thirty, something tells me you already know how it ends. So I'll give mild spoiler warnings, but like, the spoilers are public knowledge. So, folks, yeah. if you, you know, go watch the movie. But this is probably the first time in a few weeks, Brad, that I would say you can get the movie spoiled for you and listen to us talk about it before you watch the movie. And I think you could still enjoy it. Yeah, a hundred percent. The the movie obviously does not key. It's it's not an M. Night, M. Night Shyamalan movie. <laughs> we'll, we'll just say that. All right, Brad, you have one minute on the clock and go. Zero Dark Thirty is a movie about a CIA analyst played by Jessica Chastain named Maya and her hunt for Osama bin Laden. (laughs) (laughs) And her hunt for Osama bin Laden. It follows her from her early days in the CIA as she is squeamish about torture all the way through to the very end as she's being attacked in, in her Pakistani embassy and her willingness to go to every length possible to find and kill Osama bin Laden. Mm-hmm. I I don't know what else to say, Bob. No, not really. I mean, but, that's that's the plot like of the movie. It's, yeah, it's about her, and she has a drive to find and kill him. Well, <laughs> have have somebody else find and kill him. She'll or, find him. Or in Brad's terms, catch him. <laughs> catch him. <laughs> have you ever seen the, the bad man? like college humor videos oh yeah, yeah yeah there's the one where he's talking about how he he doesn't, <laughs> he doesn't kill, kill anybody yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> they just go to sleep <laughs> <laughs> that's what they did with with osama that's on the historical record at this point yeah <laughs> all right man i think maybe the place to start is comparing this directly to the film that we just came out of which is the hurt locker and i think it's very clear a I mean, just looking at this movie, the scope of this movie is just enormous compared to The Hurt Locker. Yeah, and it's, it, a, it's a decade-long right. film. And just, you know, the, the cast is incredibly stacked. You can see the budget on the screen. I always love it when, like, a filmmaker's next movie gets a much bigger budget. It's almost like when I watch the first Godfather and then the Godfather Part Two, And mm-hmm. you're like, oh, this clearly had at least twice the budget. And, you know, in the case of The Hurt Locker, it had between four and five times the budget. That's, and I think dude, just just in looking at it, you can tell. Yeah, that's that's what winning an Oscar will do for you, Bob. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, you, you can definitely see the 
you can see where the money goes. Mm-hmm. Like that, like that's something we talk about every once in a while on the podcast. You can see the money in this. There, there's a lot more special effects, a lot more just like big showy scenes. And there's just a lot more movie to watch. There's, there <laughs> certainly is. It's a long movie. It's, it's a really long movie, man. And that's one of the detractions I would give this film is it. It's a little bit too long. <laughs> I have not watched this movie front to back since the first time I watched it, which I guess would have been in 2013 after the Oscars. Uh, but I gave it a 10 out of 10 at the time. And I will Holy say cow. life update. I'm not giving this movie a 10 out of 10 now. <laughs> That's Bob. I was really worried that we were going to come into this and I was going to give it like an eight or something. And you'd be like, what are you doing? <laughs> no, I mean, like, I think I'm kind of in that range now, not to spoil my final scores, but it will definitely be taking a step back. It's not a perfect movie. It Like, it has some pacing issues for me, but I think even as I get into talking about pacing issues, the whole reason I brought up the comparison to The Hurt Locker is that in addition to being, like, just massive in terms of scope and scale and ambition, it's also a completely different kind of movie. Like mm-hmm. the fact that both of these movies are set in the Middle East is about the only thing they have in common from like a narrative storytelling standpoint. I would put this movie in a completely different genre from The Hurt Locker. I don't, I don't want to like totally nitpick. Would, would we consider Pakistan the Middle East? No, that's true. Did, are they ever in? Yeah, they're in Afghanistan at some point in the movie, right? Because they go to the the CIA black ops base on in Afghanistan. Yeah. Anyway, yeah. there's Middle East elements. <laughs> Dude, just, okay. <laughs> I like geography, man. Fair point. <laughs> what I'm trying to say is, you know, I watched The Hurt Locker and like, obviously, yes, it's a war movie and this one's not a war movie, but it tells a very conventional narrative story. There is like a narrative arc, there's tension builds, there's a resolution. This movie is much more episodic. And as I tried Mm -hmm. to like categorize what even is the genre of this movie, the only kinds of films that I can really compare it to are like journalist movies, you know, like a procedural about like like all the president's men or spotlight has a lot in common with the way this movie unfolds. It's just that instead of trying to break a story, they're trying to catch the world's most infamous criminal. But it has that same sort of almost like police procedural element to it. Yeah, 100%. And and yet, it also has a bit of like a Jason Bourne movie. Mm-hmm. Like for me, the vibe of the lighting in the movie reminded me of the Bourne movies. Mm-hmm. And the way that they have like a gritty realism vibe to the foreign countries that they place their characters in, for, you know, foreign if you are from the US, obviously, just felt very similar to me. I, mm-hmm. Like, I found myself often throughout the movie thinking that, like, this is a much more serious Jason Bourne-esque movie. Yeah. that And that, like, that's what really stuck with me in a good way. Like, I think that the look and the feel of this movie are, like, A, I think it's the right tone that they should have struck. And B, like, they kept it consistent throughout the entire film. Mm-hmm. And that was really well done. I'm really glad you agree with me on this because I was worried that we were going to end up getting in a debate about like when I looked at the genre of the movie online, it's categorized as a political thriller. And I feel like that's Mm -hmm. one of those kinds of genres that there's a huge umbrella for what you can call a political thriller. 
And that's yeah. everything from like, you know, like Manchurian candidate. Exactly. Like I'm being chased by there's a conspiracy against me and it's an action yeah. thriller all the way mm-hmm. down to like this kind of, you know, backroom political intrigue kind of thing, which which like operates Aaron on Sorkin West Wing. Yeah, which, which operates on a much different kind of rhythm. And so, like, I guess, the you know, just to kick things off here, my observation is this is a very different movie than The Hurt Locker. Yeah, and it's it's fascinating how Bigelow is working in the same era of like history. Like she's making historical uh, fiction ish mm-hmm. movies, mm-hmm. and th- like I don't know, I'm very curious why she as a director was drawn to this era. Um, I mean, obviously, she's making these movies as the things are happening. Mm-hmm. Like, Zero Dark Thirty originally was supposed to be a movie about the failed manhunt for yeah. Osama bin Laden. And then they found him and killed him. Or, or sorry, they found and caught him. They caught him. And, <laughs> <laughs> and they completely rewrote the script to fit the catching of Osama bin Laden. Do you think this is a good time to get into, like, the whole controversy? Or should we save that for a little bit later? Yeah, let's just get it out of the way. Yeah, okay. They, so they waterboard people. That here's the I will say one of the best lines I've ever heard in a movie is when the the CIA agent that trains uh, Jessica Chastain in the field on how to torture people is leaving, and he's like telling her to be careful. He's like, you know, times are changing. They're not letting us do what we need to do. And then he goes, "You don't want to be the last one." found holding the the, the dog collar the, the dog collar <laughs> and i'm like oh i don't like that yeah the, but the, it's a great line the crazy thing is like that's not a euphemism that's not nope. a metaphor that is no nope. he's being literal it's describing what they did to prisoners 100 percent. so and wait, i will say go ahead in the movie i have not read about what they actually did i will just comment on what they portrayed in the movie what they portrayed in the movie is effed up, bro. Yeah, it's horrific. Well, and I was going to say, the funny thing is, this movie is so controversial that there are controversies off of the controversies. And <laughs> yep, when I said, like, let's talk about the controversy, I wasn't even thinking about the torture element of it, which in itself oh. was very controversial. And a lot of people, movie critics that did not like this movie, really went in on it and basically said, essentially, the arc of the story is, if not for the torture of these prisoners, we would not have caught Osama bin Laden, right? Yeah. We being Americans, right? We are Americans. I, you know, sorry, I'm using the, 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 uh, the formal we here. Yeah. I, I think you mean, um, Americans. Yes, exactly. But (laughs) so, and so the point they're essentially making is whether Catherine Bigelow and the screenwriter Mark Bull understand it or not, they're essentially condoning what's being portrayed on screen. And so it became this big back and forth with Mark Bull saying, like, you're misreading the film, if that's what you think. But, I mean, those elements are there. And the controversy, Brad, that I was referring to, though, is the fact that this movie essentially ends up getting accused of stealing CIA secrets. That, like, Mm. how could they have known how this operation went down less than a year after it happened? Unless somebody was feeding them information about it. And so, you know, Mark Bull has come out and said, like where he got his information from. And and then the funny thing is, like, after the movie comes out, it's getting investigated. They opened a Senate investigation against this movie to figure out 
uh, what you know, like how they got their information. And at the same time, they're investigating it for stealing CIA secrets. There's a whole section of Congress, especially people like John McCain, Dianne Feinstein, who are accusing the movie of being grossly inaccurate. So it's like, yeah. OK, well, if they stole secrets, then they clearly didn't <laughs> use them because you're saying none of this happened. So like it was caught in between all of these kind of hot button controversies. It came out in an election year. People accused it of trying to be released uh, so that it would influence the you know people in favor of voting for Obama, even though it hardly mentions Obama. It really just did become a political lightning rod for a few months there. And yeah, that's interesting, Bob, because technically this movie was supposed to come out in 2012, but it ended up coming out in really early 2013 because they didn't want to affect the election, I guess. I think it, I think so, it's giving this movie a lot of credit to assume that like so many people are going to go see this movie and yeah. attribute all of this to Barack Obama that it will sway an American election. Yeah. Well, and and if we're being honest, like in the end, at the end of the day, Barack Obama was the president who gave the order to oh, go. Oh yeah, a hundred percent. So like giving credit where credit's due, and like that's fine. Like he was the president. It's whoever is the quarterback of the team gets the yep. W or the L. Yep. Like, so if, if Obama gets the W for that, then he gets the W for that. That's, I, I don't know. That just seems like a silly talking point, mm -hmm. but I know we're talking about American politics where nothing is silly and everything is important. Mm -hmm. So, you know, <laughs> you know what, Bob, we should probably just talk about politics this entire episode. I was actually hoping that we could just pivot the show to like film and politics. Oh, no. Whiskey politics and, and whiskey. Yeah, it's got to be. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. OK, there, there we go. There it, it is. <laughs> in the logo, we'll get rid of the film reel and just put an American flag <laughs> or like uh, like the judicial scales. Yeah. yeah oh, that's a good one. Yeah, Statue perfect. of Liberty. Yes, 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 yes. All right, man. Let's talk the, about the movie itself. And I want to start with Jessica Chastain because it's her movie. Jessica Chastain is such an interesting case study in stardom because she was, you know, a working actress. She had been in a few movies like in 2010. She comes out with this movie called The Debt, where she plays a supporting role. And so, like, she's working her way up through, you know, the the food chain in Hollywood. And I, she makes a I love the I love the phrase working actress, though, as if like Meryl Streep isn't working. She's just like <laughs> floating on clouds around the set. Meryl Streep is gigging <laughs> at this point. She, yeah. she doesn't need steady work. Come on. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> so Chastain films like six or seven movies that all like some of them get shelved for a few months. Some of them get rushed into post-production. And in the year 2011, she has one, two, three, four, five, six movies come out. And like at least four of them are either like really beloved by critics or become really big hits. So she makes a movie with Ray Fiennes that he directs. It's an adaptation of the Shakespeare play Coriolanus. Uh, she's in the movie Take Shelter with uh, Michael Shannon, which is, I mean, a phenomenal movie. I love that film. She makes The Tree of Life, where she is like co-starring opposite Brad Pitt in a Terrence Malick movie. like And Sean Penn. And, and Sean him. Penn. Don't forget him. <laughs> And then the one that really kind of puts her on the map is the movie The Help. The Help gets nominated mm -hmm. for a bunch of Oscars. I believe she gets nominated for Best Supporting Actress for The Help. And so from relative obscurity to the end of that year, she's like one of the biggest names in Hollywood. And then what does she have coming out the following year? Oh, just Zero Dark Thirty. Like, it's, yeah. it's so crazy to think how quickly this kind of thing can happen. 
Yeah. And Chastain. Well, and like Inter- Interstellar just a year or two later. Yeah, exactly. Like, yeah, she had a really nice run there for a while. And, you know, she finally has won her Oscar uh, just a little over a year ago for the movie The Eyes of Tammy Faye. It's just crazy because I feel like she's been a fixture in Hollywood for so long. But there was a time when from one year to the next, nobody knew her. And then she was, you know, the hottest thing in town. Yeah. Stardom thrust upon her quickly. That's what's going to happen to us, baby. That we're we're gonna hit the big time, Bob. Man, what I don't. What does the big time even look like for a, a podcast? Nah, not that. Jessica Chastain's career. I can tell you that much. <laughs> okay, <laughs> we're not gonna be making millions of dollars if we couldn't hit the level of fame she had before 2011. <laughs> we'll be like gods in the podcasting world. Yeah, yeah, we probably would be, man. <laughs> Well, here's here's to becoming gods of the podcasting world. <laughs> so Chastain in this movie, uh, pretty incredible, Brad. Yeah, she like you said, she is the driving force of this film. Like her emotional engine keeps this thing moving. Mm-hmm. And boy, does this movie need it because it is long. Like <laughs> I, I, I can't emphasize this enough, Bob. I, I checked. I, I try my hardest to not check where I'm at in a movie. Like you're not meant to know it when you're sitting in the theater there. There's nothing. You can't just like, you know, check to see how much time you have left. You can't put on subtitles. I've, I've returned to a place where I try to watch movies as much like I'm in the theater as possible. Uh, this one I checked at one point and I was like, Oh dear God, I have an hour and 20 minutes left. I'm not even halfway. And I checked one more time and I was like, Oh, man, there's 53 minutes left. This is really rough, man. I'm not going to lie to you, man. We'll get back to Chastain in a second. I did the same thing, like, multiple times throughout this movie. Because, again, this is kind of, I don't want to say the downfall, but it is an inherent feature of this kind of episodic procedural movie. That Mm -hmm. because there is not a traditional narrative arc, even though there's kind of the built-in, like, the hunt and then the catch at the end of the movie... (laughs) <laughs> so there is like a, a kind of arc, but it's so episodic and so stop start. And then, you know, one step forward, two steps back because mm-hmm. of the nature of this case that you really can't tell how far you are into the movie at any point. And it yeah. seems very endless and repetitive. And again, that's that's the nature of what it was like to do this. However, yeah. you know, I got like a half hour into the movie and. I couldn't remember if all of the torture stuff was just like an extended prologue to what was going to happen. And it's like, no, it's not really a prologue. It's just like one chapter of this film. And then she goes off and does another thing. And then she gets shot at by some people. And then she's with SEAL Team 6. And I don't know, man, I'm with you. And I I hit the point where there's that assassination attempt on her, one of many, where she's getting Mm -hmm. shot at, you know, and she has to like drive backwards behind that gate. And I pressed pause and it was like at the hour and a half-ish mark. Yep. And I was yep. like, oh, there's still a full hour left in this movie. And I feel like yeah. I've been watching it for at least 2.5 hours. Yeah. It's pretty much the same as the uh, ending of The Return of the King. Mm-hmm. Like, <laughs> like it's episodic. There's like seven different episodes to the ending. And every single one is better than the last. <laughs> so back uh, back to Jessica yeah. Chastain. Let's here. get back to Jessica for a second. I think what makes her work as a character is the way she slowly unravels mm-hmm. throughout the movie mm-hmm. that at the very start you have a fresh faced like right out of school 
recruit who, you know, shows a lot of promise. And by the time you get like 45 to 60 minutes into the film, you hear her asking prisoners the same questions that her trainer was asking mm-hmm. and using the same phrases. And you're kind of like, oh, she's like, she's like in now. She She's bought into the, what they're doing. Mm-hmm. And then from there, you see the physical transformation happen. And she gets, you know, her hair gets more and more unkempt. And she doesn't care quite as much about her makeup anymore. And and you see her kind of slowly lose it throughout the film. And I, I think that's the thing that keeps the film moving, is how her emotional energy becomes more ragged as the film goes further and further along. Well, yeah, and I think the great thing about it is that they kind of establish at the beginning of the film that this is all she has. This is all she does. She has no life outside of this. We never find out her last name, and that's because this is a fictional character. This, I mean, based on real CIA operatives, but we only know her as Maya, and anyone only knows her as Maya. I don't think they ever use a last name for her in this movie. And it gets to a point where one of her colleagues asks her, do you have any friends? And she just doesn't answer. And it's pretty obvious that she doesn't. And so when you get to the end of the film, and I, Brad, I love the ending of this film. And that last mm-hmm. shot of the movie has stuck with me <laughs> for, you know, 11 years now. It's yeah. this 45 probably second shot that is just a close up on her pace because they've killed Bin Laden and they put her on a plane. And the guy says, like, hey, you must be pretty important. You're the only person here. So you, it's echoing her isolation. And then he says, where do you want to go? And she has no answer. And yep. the plane starts to kind of just meander down, yeah. you know, the taxiway and she's crying and she's understanding, like, where where do I go from here? Catherine Bigelow yeah. in, a, in an interview was was talking about how she loved this ending because she wanted the audience to understand that this is not just where do I go from here, but where do we go from here? Like, as Americans, we were hoping that someday we could catch and or kill Osama bin Laden. And then it happened. Mm-hmm. And it's like, OK, well, what now? There's this there's still this emptiness. There's still this loss that we feel from 9-11 and that void has not been filled. And so she's a really great representation of that. And I think Chastain just freaking knocks it out of the park in that scene, man. Yeah, she does. I mean, honestly, it reminds me a ton of the ending of The Social Network Mm. where like you're just sitting with the character and it's like, all right, we just accomplished all this stuff. We did all these great things. But who am I at the end of this? Well, mm-hmm. Like, what's next? What am, what am I going to turn into? And I think that that's, like, probably one of my favorite, I don't know, I'm going to call it a trope. Like, one of my favorite tropes from Hollywood is, like, okay, we obviously made this movie about a specific event because that's what's interesting. But as with everybody's life, there's going to be really interesting parts of our lives But those times are going to end like at a certain point, the honeymoon, you know, if you get married, your honeymoon ends and you go back to work and you learn how to live with your now spouse. And and like the the rest of time is trying to figure out, okay, what do we do next? And I think that's a really important question that we should be asking ourselves as human beings that a lot of times I try to run away from. I I don't want to think about like the boringness of life. In day-to-day life, but but movies like this kind of force you to reckon with that of like, okay, this important thing ended, 
who am I? Where mm. am I going? What am I doing? And, and and what's next? You're absolutely right, though, man. Like the the subgenre of movie that is, you know, ambiguous ending where the character is now morally lost and doesn't know where to go from here. Yeah. Is like, you know, because obviously it reminded me of the end of Up in the Air because it's set on mm. a plane. But that, you know, yeah. when when the pilot finally comes out and tells George Clooney, like, you're in the Diamond Club now or whatever, where do you want to go? And he just doesn't know what to say. And then the movie ends with him looking at that board of departures at the airport and just being like, you know, one of the lights that you see above you tonight will be my wingtip. And you just don't know where he's going to go from here. Yeah. And uh, I, I do. I love movies like this, man, because it's always like just such a gut punch to end mm. the film. And like I said, man, Chastain gets nominated for Best Actress for this movie, and she she absolutely deserves it. It's a great performance. Yeah. Do you know who won that year for actress? Huh. Who won that year for actress? Uh, uh, it might have been Jennifer Lawrence. Oh, yeah. For Silver Linings Playbook. Yep. Hmm. Which I have seen. I think I'd lean towards Chastain in this. Oh, I agree. 100%. Yeah. Or Emmanuel Riva in Amour, obviously. Yes. I mean, she I she mean, also gets caught at the end of that movie. She... <laughs> <laughs> All right, Brad, it's time for us to hit pause at this point, because this is going to go off the rails uh, very quickly if we don't stop here. Let's drink some whiskey, man. It's time we get into this David Nicholson reserve. What do you say? (laughs) She got caught with a pillow. With a pillow. (laughs) Bro, you got me good with that. Let's go drink some whiskey. All right. So today we are checking out David Nicholson Reserve. This is a 100 proof bourbon whiskey that comes to us from the Luxco Company, also known as Lux Row. Luxco built a distillery back in, I think, 2017, 2018, 2019, somewhere in there called Lux Row. They <laughs> 2020, are 2020, 2021, 2022. Who knows? Who's, who's to say? Who's to say? They produce one of our favorite lines of whiskey, which is Rebel Bourbon. Uh, mm. near and dear to my heart, my favorite brand of whiskey pound for pound on the market. And this is another of their sourced products. So they didn't start distilling their own stuff until just a couple years ago. They have been rumored to have just the best relationship with heaven Hill. Most of their sourced stuff reportedly reputedly comes from heaven Hill. Uh, and this is among those. So David Nicholson is a brand that, uh, was apparently very regional, and it has like a kind of a BS marketing story behind it of like, oh, this this man made his own whiskey and passed his recipe down for generations. And so they took this brand that was, I think, in the St. Louis region. They expanded it to national distribution and they're sourcing likely Heaven Hill whiskey to do it. There's two whiskeys bottled under the David Nicholson label. One is called, I believe, 1843. That is a weeded bourbon. And then there is the David Nicholson Reserve, which is what we're drinking today. This is a high rye bourbon, Brad. But again, we have no idea where it comes from. Wink, wink. We have no idea what the mash bill is for real, for real. So that's all I have to say about it, Brad. I, I like that your your caveats are wink, wink, and for real, for real. <laughs> <laughs> Keeping it classy here at the Film and Whiskey Podcast. This might be a first for the season, Brad. You and I are both trying this live. Usually you drink yours before we hit record. I like to just kind of do mine in the moment and just kind of feel mm-hmm. feel nice and loose about it. But we're both doing this right now in the moment. I'm nosing this and I really love the nose on this, man. 
Uh, yeah, I think it's a really solid nose. For me, it's a little bit nutty. There's some cherry that comes through, a little bit of like an allspice. Mm. And then like the the longer I've sat with it, the more you you get some of those caramel and vanilla notes coming out. Uh, I think it's I think it's pretty solid, not complex enough for me to give it a high score, but I'll, I'll give it a seven out of ten. This is a complete aside, but right now I'm tasting out of a like a mini Glencairn, a wee Glencairn, as they're called. <laughs> a wee cairn. It's what we got when we went to the Kentucky Bourbon Festival last year, Brad. Mm-hmm. And my aside is to ask you this. Have you noticed a difference in the taste when you drink out of a regular sized Glencairn versus the wee Glencairn? Uh, I'm going to be really snobby for a second, Bob. I don't drink whiskey out of anything other than a Glencairn. <laughs> well, this is a Glencairn. It's just mini sized, man. Yeah, I, that's not a Glencairn, Bob. It's, it's like a, it's all a, those pictures of like Glen when Cairn. Andre the Giant would have like a beer can in his hand. That's what I feel yeah. like right <laughs> now. With... <laughs> <laughs> yes, 100%. So anyway, I say all that because the notes that I'm getting on the nose of this are very different than the ones you're getting. And I'm getting a lot more of the brighter fruity notes. There's a ton of green apple on this for me. And I actually got a really specific candy memory. And it's those sweet tarts, like the chewy sweet tarts that have like the mm-hmm. the inside of them is white. The, those are the best. There's like a very specific, almost sour, powdery fruitiness to this that I really, really dig. The only thing is, for being a reportedly high rye bourbon, I get almost no rye on this nose. Yeah. I, I don't get it either, Bob. Uh, I do have a question for you. Mm-hmm. Do you own a Glen Cairn? Oh, I own like 15 Glen Cairns. Then why aren't you drinking out of one of those? Because, dude, it's just next to my computer. Damn. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just curious. I, 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 I'm like, if you had like two and they're both in the wash, sure. But all right, let me go get a Glen Cairn while you <laughs> while you vamp and give a score. <laughs> Oh, man. So, yeah. So the palette here uh, is is really interesting. For me, it dives very heavily into the world of cherry. And I'm honestly not getting very much rye at all. Like, Bob, I know that you said that this is a high rye bourbon. But for me, it's almost like a cherry cordial, like a chocolate cherry cordial uh, there's a little bit of vanilla that pops in. It's nice and creamy. I I like this flavor a lot. I'm a little annoyed that it's a high rye and I'm not getting really any rye because I, I like rye a lot. Uh, I think I'll give it a seven and a half on the taste. It, it's solid. I, I, I like what's going on here, um, but nothing that's like really standing out for me. This is by far our most chaotic whiskey review of all time. I, I really did get up and go get a Glencairn. And so I came back when you were halfway through talking and I I heard uh, chocolate cherry cordial. That was the first thing I heard. Now, I'm still Mm -hmm. nosing this and I get that a lot in a Glencairn. I really it's like milk chocolate with that kind of sickly syrupy sweet cherry Mm -hmm. thing inside of it. I will say, Brad, neither of us actually gave this a score on the nose yet. So I did. I give it a seven. You gave it a seven. All right. I'm going to give it a seven and a half on the nose. I'm going to take a sip so that I can finally give it a taste score. But to prevent our listeners from being bored listening to me smack my lips, go ahead and give it your finish score, and then I'll come in and give taste and finish. <laughs> uh, for me on the finish, it kind of – sours is not the right word. Sours is a very specific feeling that you know it when you taste it. Um, I feel like when whiskeys are overly oaked, they kind of sour at the end. That's not what's happening here. 
I guess, it, uh, Bob, that when you described it as that kind of sickly, sweet, cherry interior, I feel like that is just lingering on yeah. my palate. I, and I'm not a huge fan. Mm. I think I'll give it a six out of 10 on the finish. So on the taste, everything you got, I'm getting like I get the, the milk chocolate. I get the like the whole cherry cordial thing is really prominent here. There's a little bit of vanilla, but it's almost like an artificial vanilla extract for me. A lot of that fruitiness went away and it is kind of in that more milk chocolate range. When you go to swallow and on the finish, it's got a ton of oak and char on it, like a lot. And mm-hmm. Brad, I don't know if it's just that like, you know, I kind of took a break from drinking whiskey in the month between seasons, but I feel like, I don't know, like five or six of the nine whiskeys we've had at this point have had that really, really strong oak char character to them. And yeah. I will say that among them, this one doesn't lean into just like, hey, cigarette ash on your tongue. This one, it, like it has that, but then it kind of undercuts it with that sickly, syrupy, sweet cherry so that it almost in the balance ends up tasting kind of like the the lingering aftertaste of like Robitussin, mm-hmm. like a little bit sweeter, though. I don't hate it. And I really thought that I would. I'm going to give it a seven and a half on the taste. I'm going to give it a seven on the finish. Yeah, honestly. This weirdly reminds me of the Nomad Outland, oh, just not as good. <laughs> like the like the Nomad Outland had a, a weirdly sweet cherry flavor to it, and it was incredible. Mm. This one feels similar, but just doesn't quite pull it off as well. I, I think for balance, I'll give it a six and a half. Like there are some good flavors going on here. I just don't know if they're all mixing super well, especially as I, I take a step back and just consider the flavors that are left on my palate. Um, It's decent, but not great. I'm also going to give it a six and a half on balance. And I know that it sounds weird because I gave each component a higher score than this. But I think when you take the sum of the parts, it ends up being less than each of them. You know what I mean? Like it's it's just an okay whiskey. It's pretty good. Uh, On second sip, that finish gets a little bit more bitter and a little bit less palatable. I'm not going to go back and amend my finish score, but in terms of overall balance, I think the whole experience, you know, taken as a cohesive whole is just a six and a half for me. Yeah, it's it's a little bit disappointing. When you come to value, this bottle will can be sold in the state of Ohio for $40. Hmm. And I, Bob, this isn't a $40 whiskey. No, it's not. I mean, here's the thing, like, if we knew a little bit more about it, maybe we could justify the price a bit. Like, how old is this whiskey? We don't know. I mean, it's it's got to be at least four years old because I don't see an age statement on this bottle. But, you know, if, 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 if it was like a six to eight year bourbon, I'd be like, okay, $40 makes more sense. It's 100 yeah. proof. So, like, I, I get that. But it's not bottled in bond. It's just 100 proof. So that tells me that they're blending a whole bunch of stuff together to come out with this. And at, you know, at that price point, I just... You can get a lot better stuff for $40. I think when it first came out, it was retailing at $35, and that made it kind of like a, oh, this is something different from Lux Row. It's at an approachable price. I don't mind paying a little bit more to get something kind of off the beaten path. But at $40, it's just a little bit, it has better competition. I'm going to give this a five and a half on value. Yeah, I I give it a four and a half on value. Wow. Wow. Uh, Bob, my total is coming out to a 31.5 out of 50. Brad, I'm going to 34 out of 50. So we're only coming out to a 65.5 out of 100 
or a 32.75 out of 50. I think that's a pretty like a pretty accurate score, honestly. Yeah, uh, it's like right at the point where it's not bad. It's not a bad whiskey. I just don't think I'm going to recommend it because it doesn't really do anything to stand out, whether it's on the nose, the taste, the finish. There's no real component of this that I would recommend to somebody, even if it's not a bad whiskey. Yeah, I, I would put it in the category of like a C, C plus whiskey that you don't need to spend $40 on and you don't need to spend six bucks on it for a pour of the bar either. Yeah, I mean, so it's like I, yeah. a, it's a two and a half star movie. You know, it's like, yeah, you don't you don't really regret spending your money on it. And it was pleasant enough. But you know that yeah. by the time you get home, you're going to forget about it. Just one yeah. of those. Yeah. Go drink Rebel. Go drink Rebel every day, <laughs> all day, every day. Yeah, man. I, I I won't say that I'm disappointed. Like it, like it was fine. But I, yeah, I'm with you. I'm not going to recommend it. All right, Brad. Let's get back into talking about Zero Dark Thirty. What do you say? Let's get to it. All right, everybody. That was David Nicholson Reserve, a whiskey that you can reserve spending your money on. <laughs> but Bob, you know what it's time for right now. It's time for Bob's Checkbook's favorite segment, our <laughs> Patreon plug. Oh, plug in the Patreon. Plug in the Patreon. Guys, if you like what we're doing here at the Film and Whiskey Podcast, and you want to spend some of your hard-earned money our way, we absolutely love you guys. We love producing this content, but it isn't free. As everybody knows, we, we, we try to bring the best possible material to you guys. And so we have a Patreon. Mm -hmm. If you want to check it out, it's patreon.com slash film whiskey. There are three different tiers, three, five, and $7 a month. At each tier, you get some pretty cool stuff. Uh, there's bo bonus content. There's a channel on our Discord that is solely dedicated to our patrons, where we spend time every day talking to you guys. Mm -hmm. So if you want to check it out, go to patreon.com slash film whiskey and consider, you know, throwing a few bucks our way. We really do try to give them as much content as we possibly can, too. Like, yeah. you know, we're making episodes specifically for them. Brad, I've got a thing lined up with a, a PR company right now that's sending me digital codes for movies to give mm -hmm. away. And, you know, a couple months ago, we did do a giveaway for like the broader public. But then there was also going to be a couple months where I'm like, hey, I have five copies of the new Dungeons and Dragons movie. I'm going to give them to who, patrons. You know what I mean? Yeah, like, it's who just, wants it? Exactly. So if you'd like some of these perks, consider joining us at patreon.com slash film whiskey. All right, Bob, that was your favorite segment. Now it's time for Canada's favorite segment, Two Facts and a Falsehood. Brad is going to try to stump you, Bob. Two are right and what is wrong. Two facts and a falsehood. Two Facts and a Falsehood is the part of the podcast where Brad presents three items to me as fact, one of which he has completely made up, and it's my job to figure out which one is the lie. Brad, there is, uh, I feel like we, we both had to do at least some amount of research on this movie just to understand the context into which it was released. Like, we mm -hmm. both seem pretty familiar with the controversies surrounding it. So I'm really interested to see what you're going to pull out for your Two Facts and a Falsehood. Well... Just just you wait, Bob. They're pretty incredible. <laughs> uh, fact number one, the man who killed bin Laden, Robert O'Neill, wrote in his autobiography, The Operator, that the real life CIA operative that Jessica Chastain portrays was the bravest woman he has ever met. Mm. 
Fact number two, Jessica Chastain's character was based on a real-life CIA analyst who was single-minded in her devotion to finding bin Laden, but was actually killed in a raid on the U.S. Embassy in Pakistan before the job was finished. Mm. Fact number three, Jessica Chastain's agents originally declined the role of Maya for her. Producer Megan Ellison, who had worked with Chastain on Lawless, gave Catherine Bigelow Chastain's phone number so that she could personally offer the role. Oh, interesting. Um, hmm. I do remember reading that somebody had been identified as the source, or at least one of the sources, for Maya in this movie. I don't remember reading that she had been killed. So two immediately jumps out to me as a potential falsehood. Number three sounds pretty plausible. Number one definitely sounds plausible. Although I don't know the name of the guy who actually killed Bin Laden, so maybe you made that up. Who's to say? I think I'm going to just go with my gut on this one, Brad, and say that two is the falsehood just because I don't remember reading that that person had died. Bob, you are 100% correct. Yeah, all right. Yeah. I'm telling you what, man, the victories this season have been uh, hard fought and few and far between. So I will take one when I can get one. Yeah, I was going to say, this is what, our third season of doing Two Facts and a Falsehood? I think so. Yeah, so I'm I'm getting, I'm a seasoned veteran at this point, Bob. <laughs> I'm not squeamish anymore about the torture that you put me through. Yeah, there it is. <laughs> yeah, I watched a few videos of Robert O'Neill, the the gentleman who, who killed, or sorry, who, <laughs> who caught Osama <laughs> Bin Laden. Uh, and... He is a very interesting human being, and he, like, I, I don't know. There's part of me that, you know, we talked about the controversy earlier about, you know, how were, how were they able to find out the things they found out about what happened. This dude is just out there like, yeah, after I, after I caught Osama, I, like, picked up his two-year-old son and gave him to his mom. And I'm like, oh, you're, like, just allowed to talk about anything <laughs> at this point. You know, it's funny you say that because... And I wasn't able to go far enough down the rabbit hole in researching this out, but I feel like the existence of this movie kind of accelerated how quickly they declassified this story. Hmm. Because, like, I remember every single person in SEAL Team 6 wrote a book at some point. Like, it just it seemed like for a year it was like they declassified it and then everybody wrote a book about SEAL Team 6 and what they did. Yeah. And I can't help but think that that's pretty much solely because this movie came out and they needed to either corroborate it or refute it. It's just interesting to me that like a movie like this kind of drove policy in that way, not policy, but you know what I mean? Like the, the, the classification of highly sensitive materials and whether or not the public would get to know any of it. Yeah. Well, I mean, as we know with, uh, with Mr. Trump and Mr. Biden, the president could just declassify whatever he wants. Just, (laughs) Anything and everything. Willy it's declassified. Nilly. Absolutely. Willy nilly. Osama bin Laden declassified. <laughs> All right, Brad, <laughs> I think we should talk a little bit about the other actors in this movie. And it's going to be pretty quick because everybody kind of plays their small little role in what is essentially Maya's bigger story. But it's worth noting that a lot of these actors were either like semi-famous or just getting famous. Like, you know, Chris Pratt. I remember, like, I vividly remember seeing the trailer for this movie in front of every important movie in 2012. And there's a moment where they clip out the him saying, like, you really think it's him? Osama bin Laden. And it's the way he says bin Laden. <laughs> it is like etched into my brain. It'll be, I'll be on my deathbed 
yeah. forgetting the names of everyone in my family. And I'll be thinking about <laughs> Chris Pratt saying that stupid line. But oh, I man. remember seeing the movie and like, I didn't really know who he was at that point because I didn't watch Parks and Rec when it first came out. I caught up with Parks and Rec later, right before it ended. And so I didn't know Chris Pratt. Joel Edgerton, I had only seen in a couple movies to that point. I think Warrior had just come out a year before that, maybe. So I kind of mm-hmm. knew Joel Edgerton. Mark Strong, the very famous British actor. It, you know, I kind of recognized him as like, oh, he's that tall British guy. But honestly, it was only people like Kyle Chandler and James Gandolfini that I even recognized in this movie. And now I, I go back and watch it and I'm like, oh, I recognize probably 13 people in this movie. Uh, I go back and I recognize Chris Pratt and Jessica Chastain and Kyle Chandler because I watch Friday Night Lights. That's okay. Hold oh, on. and uh, Harold Perrineau, who was in Lost. In Lost. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, okay. So, so I, I, the person I wanted to call out was James Gandolfini because I thought that it was is we've never talked about him on this show, and it really yeah. sucks because he's like one of our great actors and and gone too soon. It was so good to see him pop up in a movie, and I just I love watching that guy act. But are you saying that you did not recognize James Gandolfini, Bob? I'm looking at the cast on IMDb right now. He doesn't even pop up on the cast like the main cast list. Like you have to click see all to see. James yeah, I mean, Gandolfini. he has a very small role, but like you what I'm asking you is like when you saw him on screen, did you know who he is? No, oh I, I know gosh, what his name is. I couldn't pick him out of a lineup. I don't know what he's been in. Oh, my God. Bro. I'm not even going to say what I, like Brad. <laughs> I'm so I'm so, I'm so mad at you, right? Can you click I, on him? Click on his IMDb. And then you'll I go, can't find I, it. And then you'll go, I'm like, oh, I'm like scrolling through the IMDb actor page. Oh my God. There's 112 results and I can't find every time I Mark think that like Duplass. you've learned things by being on this podcast with me. You come back with like, a, oh, I don't know who Tony Soprano is. I don't know what the television show, the seminal piece of entertainment that is the Sopranos is like. I mean, I've heard of The Sopranos. Oh, I've my never God. Watched you it. blow my mind, man. Why would I watch The Sopranos? Oh, my God. You know what? No. Don't push me there today, Brad. We're not good. <laughs> I just wanted to say I liked seeing James Gandolfini. I I'm mean, gonna steer- is The Sopranos as good as Breaking Bad? It is It is widely regarded, um, like, along with Breaking Bad, as possibly the greatest television show ever made. I mean, if it's right there with Breaking Bad, I'm sure to watch it. Anyway, Brad... <laughs> Who are some other people in this movie that you would like to call out for their performances, however small they might be? Um, I really liked uh, uh, the British guy that you talked about. He doesn't he play kind of like the the chief who she keeps writing on his window. Yes, Mark Strong. Thank you, Mark Strong. I liked him in this. I think that he does a great job of illustrating. The like the plight of middle management <laughs> where like he's he is 100 percent on Maya's side oh, like, and trying to hard. Do he's like, he, yeah, he's like in Area 51 at one point and then flying back to Pakistan <laughs> and she's just like yep. angrily writing on his window. <laughs> yeah. And like she but he's like not allowed to show her that he's doing everything he can to get this investigated. Like he might not fully believe that bin Laden's there, but he knows something's up. Mm. And so I just I loved his performance because he just plays that middle manager role so incredibly well where he's keeping her at bay 
and yet also fighting his butt off to try and get the stuff she's figured out investigated. Mm-hmm. So I, I really liked him a lot. Uh, I didn't like Chris Pratt. Like, he's just too fluffy for me to believe that he's on SEAL Team 6. <laughs> <laughs> like, I, I don't know if that's like body shaming or something, but I'm just like looking at him. I'm like, well, yeah, I don't think he would, you know, like Star-Lord level Chris Pratt could be on SEAL Team 6. But like... Uh, Parks and Rec, Chris and Pratt could not be on SEAL Team 6. <laughs> I'm not even going to go there with that one. <laughs> but Who's I, Jason Clark? Because I didn't like him. Jason as... Clark is an interesting actor because like, he's in this movie. He's in one of the, the new Planet of the Apes movies. He does a few indie films that are like really well regarded. Uh, and then he he's like poised to get really big. And then he just kind of doesn't. And I've always really liked him as an actor. I think he makes super interesting choices. And in this movie, he plays a very, I don't even want to know if I want to call him a a complicated character because he's kind of uncomplicated uh, and very steely. But it's interesting to go back now because when I first watched this, I was like, that guy is going to be a movie star. And it just like never really happened for him. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I think he's interesting in this. I think his most interesting moment is like completely overlooked and it's when he disagrees with Maya in like the big briefing yeah, with yep. uh with Tony Soprano mm-hmm. and uh and he he says 60% and like Maya kind of looks at him and then they never talk about it again mm-hmm. and I'm like that like that to me is a moment of character development and it's just completely glossed over because they have to get finished with their two yeah, and a half hour yeah. movie. That's a great point. And so I, yeah. So I think that is kind of the stuff of why I think the pacing is off in this film because you don't get enough character interaction between her and people they've established as important. Like even uh, even uh, Coach What's His Face from Friday Night Lights, mm-hmm. like they just kind of get rid of him halfway through the movie and and he gets shipped off back to America and you don't really see him again and. I'm like, why? Like, I, I want to see Jessica Chastain, like, bounce off of people more often. That's when she's most interesting. And yet they keep taking people out of her way. And they finally put a put a CIA chief in ta- on uh, like in charge of her that just says, yep, I learned that you should do whatever you want. So go for it. I'm like, OK, Brad, I love it when I, I can tell that you're starting to get either upset with the movie or just kind of digging your heels in on a point that you've made because. <laughs> You start doubling down on certain behaviors. And one of those behaviors is like, you're not even trying to say people's names anymore. Like you just referred to Mark Strong as that British guy you mentioned. And you referred to Kyle Chandler as coach. What's his face? Well, I didn't remember his name, which is even better because not only did you not call him by his real human name, but the thing you actually associate him with, which is Friday Night Lights. You don't even remember his name from that. And you can't be bothered <laughs> no. to look up either of those things. You just say, Coach, what's his name? And you know that I know who you're talking about. <laughs> oh, Bob, I'm in the middle of a rant. I don't have time to be clicking through IMDb. Oh, my and gosh. remember what his name is in Friday Night Lights. <laughs> <laughs> All right, man. Before we get out of here and before we pair this movie up with Let's Make It a Double, I want to talk really briefly about Catherine Bigelow's directing style. So we're two movies in with her. We're going to throw it all the way back to 1992 with Point Break next week, which is a much more conventional, you know, kind of in the vein of The Hurt Locker. It tells a much more conventional narrative story, and it is much more Hollywoodized in terms of its look and feel. 
even than the Hurt Locker is. And so I guess I'm wondering, Brad, after two movies, do you feel like you have a grasp on her style, on her themes, like on her visual sense as a director yet? Or do you think you need another movie to try to make that determination? Yeah, I feel like it's hard to say that I would have a grasp on it because of how specific her first two movies are. Mm. Like, even though, yes, they are different genres, like like 100% Hurt Locker and this one, as you said at the, the top of this episode, are, are very different genre movies. And yet they are both about the same thing. They're both about the results of 9-11 and, and what America did in response to that. And so I feel like they're both similar enough in that sense that I, the idea that this woman also directed a movie about surfers who commit bank robberies. I mean, let's just say I'm intrigued to see the hard left turn we're about to take. <laughs> <laughs> also, his name is Coach Taylor. There, so there it is. You, you're welcome. It was better when it was Coach What's-His-Face. <laughs> so Catherine Bigelow does not get nominated for Best Director in this year for Zero Dark Thirty, which I think is really fascinating. Uh, this was the subject, again, of some controversy uh, and I don't know if we've talked about this, Brad, but this was the year that Argo came out and Argo goes on to win Best Picture. Ben Affleck, this was like his big comeback movie as a director and people were starting to give him his flowers. And then he wins like the Director's Guild Award. And then for some reason, he doesn't even get nominated for the Oscar. And that's kind of how Argo takes pole position at the Oscars is that people were rallying around Ben Affleck and basically being like, well, if it's not going to win Best Director, like let's give it Best Picture. And so I can't remember a year where there were two bigger omissions in the best director category, because I'm looking at the list now and a couple of these people, I'm like, yes, I absolutely think they belong here. But to leave Catherine Bigelow out of this, I think is kind of a staggering omission because this is as well directed, if not better, well, if not better directed than the Hurt Locker was. Yeah, I I think it is. Well, I don't know if I think it is. I need, I need to ponder that, Bob. <laughs> she should have at least been nominated, I guess is what I'm saying. No, I, I'm with you. This is a high enough quality movie that it, it deserves a nomination. I think that 2010 was a weaker year for the Oscars. And so I think that it makes sense that she would win that year as opposed to this year. Uh, do I think that this is better directed than... I just I think when you think about like... She said they shot two million feet of film on this movie and like all of the tiny little scenes that they had to do like an entire, you know, get an entire crowd shot just for like a five second insert of somebody getting followed through a crowd or all of the Mm -hmm. drone footage, all of the night vision footage, like the the entire half hour long assault on that complex is such a well-directed piece of action cinema like, mm-hmm. I just, yeah, I don't know, man. Like, I think sometimes we we look at action movies and especially movies like this that are very big in scope and we don't, we don't really think about just how big the scope is. I've, I have now seen after uh, last week, I have now seen the movie Top Gun Maverick five times in theaters, Brad. <laughs> and I'm like, that's, that's this, quite a few times. This is one of the best directed movies I've seen in a long time. And, and certainly one of the best edited because there's just a mountain of stuff to stitch together. And the fact that it even can be coherent at the end of it, I think is like 
a miracle in itself. And I kind of feel that way with this movie too. Yeah, I, I think you're probably right. I think that I'm holding the length of the movie against it. Mm. But when you break down each individual sketch, if you will, um, and I will say the the whole naming each like yeah, you know, statecraft, not, not a fan at all. Like, honestly, I wish that they just put up the year. Mm-hmm. Like now it's now it's 2006. Yep. You know, pa- Pakistan. That's where we are now. Like that would have been much better. But when you when you look at each individual little uh, vignette, they're pretty incredible, dude. Yeah. And I, I think this would be a movie worth watching in two sittings. And I, I feel like I would rarely say that. But this is one where like when you hit the end of one of the vignettes like halfway through, I think it would almost be worth taking a night off and, and finishing it the next day. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm actually I'm, I'm right there with you. And I think that is a perfect segue into our final segment of the day, which we call Let's Make It a Double. We're near the end of the episode, so thanks for listening to the Film and Whiskey Show. Let's pair another film with this one, even if it's struggle. It's the final segment of the day, now let's make it a double. Let's Make It a Double is the part of the show where we pick a movie to pair up with this one to make the perfect double feature. Brad, I'll let you go first, but I I do think I have a couple of movies in mind for this one. Man, I am. I'm not going to lie. I think I'm pretty incredible at Let's Make It a Double. Uh, this week, I'm coming up short. Yeah. I literally can't think of a movie that I'm just like, hands down, this is a perfect fit for this. As it is, I think I'm going to go with the Jason Bourne, uh, uh, the Bourne identity. Mm. I, I do think that it is... You know, the Born Identity is much more of a classic thriller drama type of movie, but I think that there's enough of the same blood running through its veins that it, it would make for a really fun night to go from this into a a little bit lighter-hearted Born Identity. Mm-hmm. Yeah, man, I think it's a great pick. I, you know, when I was watching this movie once again, I was really blown away at what a matter-of-fact filmmaker. Catherine Bigelow is like the way she shoots the action in this movie is very rarely like I don't want to say artistic, but it's not like it's not meant to be aesthetic. It's meant to be functional. And I think once again, I said this last week, she reminds me a lot of Ridley Scott in the way that she shoots some of her action scenes. And and Black Hawk Down, I think, is really like a pretty major influence on this movie. I'm not going to go with Black Hawk Down, though. I think the movie that that would make the more interesting double feature is a movie by Steven Soderbergh called Traffic. This movie came out in the year 2000, and it is one of the first kind of like shaky cam movies, but it also tells this huge episodic anthology almost. And it's about the war against drugs in America and in the Mexican cartels. And it follows like three or four different groups of people. And I think that the way that movie is structured, the rhythm of that movie is so similar to zero dark 30 they tell completely different stories but they're so similar uh like rhythmically that i think that would make a really really interesting double feature bro the, I, i'm looking at the cast for for traffic it is like peak 2000 oh it's a great yeah, michael yeah. michael douglas Catherine zeta jones dennis quaid like that benicio del toro a, man it's a, benicio it's a, yeah. uh don Cheadle. that that's a lineup right there man it's a good movie yeah, I'm down. Let's watch it sometime. 
All right. So that's what we have for Let's Make It a Double. Brad's going with the Born Identity. I am going with Traffic. And now it's time for our final scores. Brad, I don't think we need to belabor this point anymore. I'm going to give it an eight and a half. I think that part of me wants to give it an eight, but I respect the swing of this movie and I respect how much the, the sheer volume of this movie is so much greater than The Hurt Locker. And I think The Hurt Locker might be slightly more effective at what it's trying to do. But I also think that movies in this genre that we're identifying kind of have a ceiling for how entertaining they can be, if that makes Mm -hmm. sense. Yeah. Like a movie like Spotlight is a really well-made movie, but I'm not always like riveted by what's happening. It's more just like I, I appreciate the work these people went through to chase down their story. And I kind of feel like that with Zero Dark Thirty. I appreciate watching these people track a guy halfway across the world for two and a half hours. So I'm going to yeah. give it an eight and a half. Uh, I'll give it an eight. I think that this is like a, a pretty entertaining. If I, I will say, Bob, the first 30 minutes of the film, they have like three torture scenes mm-hmm. that each last like eight minutes long. Yep. It's rough, dude. Mm. Uh, like that was definitely a bit of a struggle for me. Uh, but once we got past that, I, I think the movie definitely moved along at a pretty good clip. Yeah, I, I think it's an 8 out of 10 movie. All right, so we are coming out to an 8.25 out of 10, but we'd like to know what you think. Is Zero Dark Thirty the better movie, or is The Hurt Locker? You can let us know on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or TikTok, at Film Whiskey. Or jump onto the Discord. We are on there every single day talking to you guys, the fans of the Film and Whiskey podcast. So if you want to join the conversation, you can find a link to our Discord at the end of every single one of our show notes. Next week, we are rounding out our discussion of Catherine Bigelow with just the most surfery movie of all time, Patrick Swayze, Keanu Reeves in Point Break. I'm excited for that one, Brad, because spoiler alert, I have never seen it. Oh, man, that's exciting. Yeah, man, I'm pretty pumped for it. So we'll be back next week with Point Break. But until then, I'm Bob Book. I'm Brad G. And we'll see you next time. <laughs>